Amen. To the praise of His glory. Well, it's lovely to see you. It's lovely to be here again. It's lovely to have a number of people visiting. And if you're visiting here and you're from Hawke's Bay, we'd love to have you join us as we worship the Lord together corporately, uh, together on a Sunday morning, and we gather together during the week. We come again now this morning to the book of Ruth. It's our latest series on a Sunday morning. After walking through the opening chapter last Sunday, we dive into chapter 2 this morning. We began to see last Sunday that this book is not simply, as it's so often uh, read and understood, it's not simply a warm and fuzzy love story, nor is it even a book about Ruth herself, but it's most certainly a book about our holy God, His immense grace, His immense guidance, His immense involvement in each and every single aspect of our life, the massive and the minute, the large and the small, even in and through unwise, even sinful decisions that we make. We saw that in chapter 1. We know the Lord is working out His plan for each of our lives. And we made note, and I want to make that again here this morning, that what makes this book of Ruth so special and so vital for us today as we live our lives is that during our sorrow and during our various trials, we don't, like the characters of Ruth didn't, we don't see God working out His mysterious providence then and there or here and now. But the book of Ruth gives us a front row seat and a window in to the life of people like you and I, namely Naomi, Ruth and Boaz, to see how God works his providence for ultimate good. That's what's so remarkable about the book of Ruth. It's us getting to see God working in the life of people when we can't see him working presently as he works out his mysterious providence. And we see that in Ruth. And seeing that, seeing God work it all out in his way, in his timing, as we study the book of Ruth and immerse ourselves in the book of Ruth, as a result of getting to see God working in the life of other people, we are then spurred on afresh, we're then spurred on a new even, to trust him in our sorrow in our various trial, in every detail of our life, knowing, because we see it tangibly in Ruth, the book of Ruth, knowing that he is working. And so we need the book of Ruth. God knew that, and so he placed it in the canon of Scripture that we would have through the reading of it, through the studying of it, through the preaching of it, a solid reminder that our God is faithful. That he's faithful. And so as we dive right into chapter 2, let's pray. Father, we come before you acknowledging our great need for you. We thank you for this work of the book of Ruth. What a treasure your word is to us. 
we understand by studying it that you have lifted your word to the same of, of, of your name. We love your word. We love you. We believe in the Holy Spirit. We come asking, Lord, that the Holy Spirit would be our truth teacher, that he would guide and illuminate. Even in this very moment of preaching, we say thank you for the preciousness of the person, the Lord Jesus Christ, who this book ultimately points to as the fulfillment of the ultimate Redeemer. Help us to grasp all that you would have for us today, that we would live for your glory today. And from this moment on, knowing you more, loving you more, adoring you more, treasuring you more, and trusting you more. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. As we move through this Old Testament narrative, we do see, as I said, God at work in the lives of particular people, namely Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz, as we'll see introduced to us this morning in chapter 2. The author of the book uses discussions in the book. You remember that I said last week out of about 84 verses, 50 of them are devoted to discussion. God is teaching us through discussion. God is revealing himself through discussion, through dialogue, through narrative. The human author uses those characters and those discussions and those events, not so as to emphasize human experience, like love and marriage that we see in Ruth. That's not the point, the ultimate point. The human author uses these discussions, uses these events to emphasize God's love, God's faithfulness to his people. And as we set sail in Ruth chapter 2 this morning, remembering Ruth chapter 1, we know now that Naomi and Ruth are in need. They're in need. They've returned now back to Bethlehem. Naomi has come back. You remember saying to the people watching on, which caused a stir as they returned to Bethlehem. She was saying to those people, I went away from here full, but I have come back empty. Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. True sorrow had fallen upon her. True sorrow had fallen upon her, had fallen upon her and her family as her husband and two children die out in Moab, where they should never have gone, we saw. And yet, if, instead of waving her fist at such bitter times and bitter providence, instead of clenching her teeth and embittering her own heart towards God, which sadly is the all too common response when hard and bitter providence comes the way of people sometimes, instead of doing any of that, we saw that Naomi, even while in a tailspin of sorts, with her poor counsel to her daughters-in-law, you remember, instead of waving her fist, Naomi actually begins in her speech to, to, to call upon the name Yahweh, to acknowledge Yahweh in her speech, and then she ultimately returns back. She arrives with Ruth, her daughter-in-law, and in the pain and in the sorrow we saw providence evidenced last week, including, you remember, the timing of the year in which they returned to Bethlehem. Look at the very last verse of chapter 1. And they came to Bethlehem 
at the beginning of barley harvest, God's providence. Naomi and Ruth are now without family. Ruth has, as Boaz will commend her in a moment, Ruth has left her mother and her father behind in Moab. She's made the commitment to follow the one true and living God as a result of God opening up her heart to see that truth. And now having arrived in Bethlehem, they're now on the poverty line, as it were. They're now on the bread and barley line, as it were. There's no men to provide. There's no family to assist. Ruth is very much a foreigner in a foreign land. And you'll notice throughout the remainder of Ruth, including in verse 2 of our chapter this morning, the author always refers to her as Ruth the Moabitess, wanting, to, wanting us to be ever mindful and not forgetting that she is a foreigner inside Israel following Yahweh in covenant relationship with the God of Israel. And the significance of that will unfold more and more as we go along. So the ladies are in need. Yet in God's providence, they arrive right as the barley is set to be cut. Therefore, meaning that it's a time when food is now plentiful for harvest and they can store it up for the year to come. So that's where things are at. That's where we begin. And now I want you to see what the Spirit of God inspired the author of the book of Ruth, who, as I said last week, we don't know who it is. I want you to see what the Spirit of God inspired the author of the book of Ruth to pen at this very point. And it serves to introduce the first of four scenes that we'll see. And those four scenes give us four headings. I want you to see now in verse 1 as we begin, the kinsman redeemer in verse 1. Now, now Naomi had a kinsman of her husband, a man of great wealth of the family of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. Why mention this right here? Why begin now? I mean, we're about to find out very soon in a matter of seconds who this character is, Boaz. Why front load it? Because the Spirit of God, by way of the human author, wants us to focus in on this man, read his biography, understand who he is, understand his pedigree, understand a little bit about him so that when we read his words and his actions... We know ahead of time who we're dealing with. And it's here in verse 1 that we're introduced ahead of time to a new character on the set. He is, we see first there from verse 1, a relative, a kinsman of Naomi. Not through her own family, but through marriage to Elimelech. Now as soon as an Israelite reads verse 1... They read that fact that Naomi was related to this man. Their mind would have then rushed to the law and to custom. And we'll learn about that later on. The second thing we see is that this kinsman, it says there in the NAS, the version that I'm reading from, it says that he is a man of great wealth. A man of great wealth. Other translations, like if you have an ESV in your hand, they really don't deal with it much at all. They kind of just skim over it somewhat. The reason is, is that the Hebrew is somewhat tricky, but the words are there. 
It's not as though they're just making them up. The Hebrew words are there and they are gibor hayil. And then that is, interestingly enough, the exact same phrase used of Gideon and others in the Old Testament as being men of valor. Men of valor. Men of great standing. And so in this introduction, this biographical sketch of Boaz, we know that he is not simply just a man of great wealth, and it's not something to just ignore, as the ESV does, but he is a man of valor. He's a man of great standing. He's a man of great prominence. He is a man of great wealth. He's a man who lived an exemplary life. He's a man of integrity, and he's a capable man. Hail Gibor. That's what it's conveying. And the author wants us to know that. And in the middle of verse 1, we see there again that he was a man of the family of Elimelech, just in case that wasn't clear at the start of verse 1. Then finally it says, whose name was Boaz. So that's Boaz's biography. The Spirit of God is telling us through this verse, front-loading it, Keep fixated on this man, Boaz. Watch how God works in and through this man, Boaz, to work out his kindness. Because remember, there are many actors on this set, but the main role is Yahweh. That's to whom the main character of this book is, the working out of his kindness. And speaking of kindness, that's exactly what we see next. In the following scene, the next scene of chapter 2, the second heading, we see the kindness of God. After being introduced to the kinsman redeemer, we now see the kindness of God in verses 2 and 3. And let me unfold what I mean by that for you. And Ruth, the Moabitess, said to Naomi, they've arrived back. They know they're on the barley and bread line. Ruth says to Naomi, Please let me go to the field and glean among the ears of the grain after one in whose sight I may find favor. Ruth the Moabitess. Mentioning the fact that Ruth was a Moabitess is threefold as a literary device by the author. Number one, as I said, remind us that she is indeed a foreigner. And number two, to tell us that she is a foreigner who will be treated differently. Differently. You see that in the way the servants are commanded not to touch her. That is, male workers commanded not to harm her physically and by implication perhaps sexually. And number three, to highlight and emphasize the kindness of Boaz towards a foreigner, Ruth. That kindness that Boaz displays to Ruth makes up the bulk of the narrative in chapter 2. And so it's here now, we see from verses 2 and 3, that Ruth is really for the first time, she's placed on set. She's on the scene. And we see her now entering into what is happening. And what we see immediately from Ruth is momentum, eagerness to get up and get going in life. In the midst of sorrow and hardship, she's getting up and she's getting going. She is aware of the law 
of God over the nation by which she has come into. She knows that there is a law that for the orphan, for the widow, and even for the foreigner, there was a provision made. The compassion of God for the poor, the needy, regardless of ethnicity, regardless of social standing, is made evident in the law of God. And she knew that. That's why she knows to go to a field of harvest that she might find favor to come behind and collect the barley. Deuteronomy 24, 19 says to Israel at the time, when you reap your harvest in your field and have forgotten a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the alien, the foreigner, for the orphan, and for the widow. Leviticus 19, verses 9 and 10 says, When you reap the harvest of your land, you are not to reap the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. You must not strip your vineyard bare or gather its fallen grapes. Leave them, listen to this, leave them for the poor and the foreigner. I am Yahweh, your God. Ruth met two of those qualifications, didn't she? She was a widow and she was a foreigner. And in the kindness of God, the kindness of God. She was able to go and gather barley. This was God's unemployment and support benefit, if you will. That involved those who were able-bodied actually going out to work for their support benefit. Instead of it just being given to them. And then just creating a whole society of entitlement. Fancy that. So Ruth is off to get among her life. And she's doing so, as Boaz declared, under the shelter of the wings of Almighty. But here now is another very real part of the kindness of God. The kindness of God, the graciousness of God comes flowing Forth from the law of God there as he provides that provision for the foreigner and for the needy. But here's another part of the kindness of God. And it's not visible from human perspective. Like that of the provision of barley and wheat left for the needy to come and gather. That's, that you can visibly, tangibly see that. But here is one aspect of the kindness of God in his providence that is somewhat not visible. And to grasp that. What I'm saying here is we need to not skip over Ruth's words to Naomi at the end of verse 2. Look there. And Naomi said to her, go, my daughter. Go. Naomi is affirming in her answer that this despair that she displayed upon arrival back to Bethlehem is slowly... Slowly dissipating. She tells Ruth to go. Do you remember what Naomi said to Ruth the last time she told Ruth to go? It was back in verse 8 of chapter 1 where Naomi was telling Ruth to go back to her pagan gods and her pagan way of worship. And we saw that that was, she had the best intentions, but it was very poor counsel because she was not 
in the right mind at the time, Naomi. She was in a tailspin because of her sorrow. But you remember what she said there? She said, go. But she also said, and may Yahweh deal kindly with you. Naomi has never fully rejected and clenched her fist at God. She's always, even in the midst of her sorrow, she's always made reference to to Yahweh and, and, and called upon and evoked the name of the one true and living God, even in her sorrow. That was the last time she said, well, and she makes a plea. May Yahweh deal kindly with you. And now here, in this exchange here in verse 2 with Ruth, please let me go to the field. And she says, go, my daughter. The prayers of Naomi are beginning to be answered. May Yahweh deal kindly with you. And she says, go. And the unfolding of Yahweh dealing kindly with her is happening. Look at verse 3. So she departed and went. And gleaned in the field after the reapers, coming in after them, where they leave what's behind, as we saw in the law. And she happened to come to the portion of the field belonging to Boaz. And in case you forgot, who was of the family of Elimelech. Three times in three verses of the family of Elimelech, of the family of Elimelech. The author wants us to understand this. But there she is. It says there, she happened to come to the portion of the field. She just happened to come. She just happened to come across a field owned by Boaz. Is that how providence works? She just happened to happen upon by chance and by luck a field? Is that how things just happen? No. But that's what makes this little phrase so great. I need to track with me here. This little phrase, she happened to come to the portion of the field belonging to Boaz, is literally rendered in the Hebrew, she chanced, sorry, her chance chanced upon the field. (laughs) The modern translation that one would use today would be, Ruth was in luck. She lucked across, across this field. Now, you remember... Our definition of providence last week, I want you to give that to you again. It was, quote, providence is where God with wisdom and love cares for and directs all things and is in complete control of all things, including the universe as a whole, the physical world, the affairs of nations, mankind's successes and failures, and the protection of his people, end quote. The Westminster Confession of Faith states, quote, God... The creator of all things does uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, all actions, all things, from the greatest even to the least, by his most wise and holy providence according to his infallible foreknowledge. End quote. The Westminster divines knew it, and every Jew knew it. We don't chance upon chance. She didn't just happen to luck upon the field. Proverbs 16 33 says, the lot is cast into the lap, but how it falls is from Yahweh. So what's going on? Well, it's here that we see the author bringing us down into the very mind and looking from the very eye of Ruth. She resolves to go and gather food. 
under the provision afforded to her as a widow and a foreigner by the kindness of God. And in her mind and in her eyes, she just happens to fall upon a field. That's from Ruth's vantage point. And that's why the author uses her chance, chance upon a field. Every Jew that reads this would just be like, well, that's not true. What's going Ah, I see what you're saying. You're showing us from Ruth's eyes. She just happened to come across a field. From God's point, He's directing every single step. From the greatest of them to the least of them. Every action. God directing by His most wise and holy providence. So, the kindness of God directs Ruth not to just some random field, but the exact field of the exact man at the exact time that we will see fulfills the exact plan of God. Make sense? This is a literary device used on purpose by the author of this book to teach us, to teach me, to teach you, to teach every single person in this room And it does so by calling out very loudly that what we see with our eyes in life and the direction and trajectory that our life seems to be taking and seems to be going is not able to be interpreted correctly without trusting that God is working in the big and the small details of your life. John Flavel, the English Puritan, wrote a wonderful book, The Mystery of Providence. If you don't have it, get it. I'm sure Grace Books will order it for you. He said in that book, quote, Providence is wiser than you. And you may be confident it has suited all things better to your eternal good than you could do had you been left to your own option. End quote. In other words, don't lean on your own estimation of what God is doing in your life. He is wiser than you are. He knows every detail of your life. You don't know every detail of your life. He knows where you're going and what you're going through. You don't know where you're going and what you're going through, really. And left to your own plans, filled with your own worrying and your own fretting, because there looks like no no light at the end of the tunnel... You'll just be consumed, but rest in Him and trust in Him that things will work out for your ultimate good. Flavel also said, the providence of God are like Hebrew letters, they can only be read properly backwards. (laughs) Ruth comes into the land of Israel And the kindness of God is displayed in the provision of the widow and foreigner. And as an overflow of his kindness and love. And the kindness of God is displayed in the very directing of her to the field of that man of valor. That man of good standing, Boaz. And it's to Boaz now, the bulk of the remainder of chapter 2 in its narrative turns. And we see there now the third scene of chapter 2 unfold. We see the kindness of Boaz. 
We've seen the kinsman redeemer. We just saw the kindness of God. And here now in verses 4 through 17 is the kindness of Boaz. In verses 4 through 7, Boaz asks his workers, we read it already, he asks his workers, that is those reaping the harvest, who that young woman is. Who's that young woman? And then the servant replies in verse 6, she is the young Moabite woman who returned with Naomi from the land of Moab. The servant replies there that Ruth had come requesting, according to that law of God, that she comes to gather what the reapers leave behind. Ruth knew the law of God. Verse 8, look there. This is the first time these two speak, Boaz and Ruth. Then Boaz said to Ruth, listen carefully, my daughter. All respect. Listen carefully, my daughter. Do not go to glean in another field. Furthermore, do not go from this one, but stay here with my maids. When Boaz said this, says this, he's saying, not just today. Don't just stay here today. It's the first thing he says to her. Don't just come today and work a little bit and be with us a little bit. Stay for the entire harvest season. How do I know that? Look at verse 23. So she stayed close by the maids of Boaz in order to glean until the end of the barley harvest and the wheat harvest. And she lived with her mother-in-law, both the season of barley and the season of wheat. Barley season was from March through to April, and then wheat season kicked in, and that was from June and July. And so right away, right off the bat, immediately, Boaz says to Ruth, you can come receive food and not only food, receive food from my fields free of charge for close to six months. And on top of that, I've told my servants to dare not harm you and dare not hinder you. And on top of that, look at verse 9. When you get thirsty... Drink the water from my water jars, and I've even told my servants to make sure they give you water. Instant kindness. Instant favor. Ruth knows that. Look at verse 10. No surprise here. Then she fell on her face. Then she fell on her face. So often we read things like this and we just don't grasp them. One thing that, 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 that we've always got to be doing in our study and certainly in our preaching is striving to give the sense. Give the understanding. Then she fell on her face. Why? Overwhelmed by the instant kindness, the abundance of favor. This falling down here is the posture of both worship and also that of deep express gratitude. Now, she is not worshipping Boaz. It is the same phrase used to describe in other places that of worship, but it's used in both ways. And here, it's that of deep gratitude. Ruth then asks, in verse 10, Why have I found favor in your sight? Why me? 
You remember that was Ruth's desire, the beginning of the day? Please let me go out in the field. After one in whose sight I might find favor. It was Naomi's prayer that Yahweh, Yahweh might pour out favor. And here, here it is. Here she is, Ruth. Look at verse 11. Why have you found favor? Boaz replied, verse 11, All that you have done for your mother-in-law after the death of your husband has been fully reported to me. And how you left your father and your mother, the land of your birth, and came to a people that you did not previously know. She hears these words while she is in that posture of immense gratitude. And no doubt, fully aware, even by the way the people are treating her, that she is a foreigner in a faraway land. I mean, Ruth was being insulted here, I can prove it. Look at verse 15. When she arose to glean, Boaz commanded his servants, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not insult her. Ruth is in this posture, and she hears those words. And this man tells her that he knows about her and what has happened to her. And there are two things I want you to see that Boaz focuses on here. Number one, the kindness Ruth displayed Naomi. That's what he points out. And number two, the commitment she made in coming back with Naomi. And now we get to see Boaz in verse 12 truly is a man of God. What do I mean by that? Well, we get a window into Boaz's spiritual state in verse 12. He calls upon Yahweh. He prays, may Yahweh reward you, reward your work. May your wages be full. I love this because we see here that Boaz knows he's not the answer man. He's not the man with all the answers. He's not the solver of all the problems. For he prays to God himself, Yahweh himself, that God would be the one who blesses Ruth. That God would be the one who provides for Ruth. He's a man after God. He's a man gripped by the reality of God. And he is a man who is pointing this woman to God. Boaz here is the living, breathing illustration of Proverbs 19.17 which says this, one who is gracious to the poor lends to Yahweh and Yahweh will repay him for his good deed. Yet more than just desiring that Ruth's wages be full and that, that, that she is rewarded, he also praises and prays to God about the fact that she has come out of her pagan ways. She has abandoned her Moabite worship, which we saw was horrific. And not too dissimilar to the travesty of today in the sacrificing of babies in the womb. We see that in the remainder of Boaz's words. 
the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to seek refuge. That is a direct reference. It's used five times in the Psalms, and all five of those times, it is a direct reference to someone coming into the covenant blessing and relationship with the God of Israel in a salvific sense. Ruth is now experiencing that blessing. Yahweh is her God. She was once alienated, separated, but she's now together with her God. She said it, your God will be my God and your people will be my people. Verse 13 really certifies the kindness of Boaz. Then she said, I have found favor in your sight, my Lord, for you have comforted me and indeed have spoken kindly to your maidservant, though I am not like one of your maidservants. And then verse 14 then illustrates and then continues the kindness of Boaz with a very particular component added in. Look at verse 14 and I'll explain. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, this is lunchtime in the middle of the day, Boaz said to her, come here that you may eat of the bread and dip your piece of bread in the vinegar. So she sat beside the reapers and he, Boaz, served her roasted grain and she ate and was satisfied and had some left. Think about that all that's going on here. Boaz has given her six months, basically, of food. He has assured her of protection from harm, water to drink. And now he gives her wine. And he gives her a meal. I mean, I'm all but certain but that this is the very first glimpse of the light, of the love, and the marriage that would soon occur between them. Boaz here is showing Ruth affection. He's doing so in a very mature, sensible, biblical way, even subtle affection. He's doing all the right things. God is first. He's a man of integrity. Integrity flows out from his primary relationship with God, his loving of God. He's following and obeying the law of God as an old covenant worshiper. He's providing for Ruth. Verse 17 tells us that. So she gleaned in the field until evening, then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. That's about 30 pounds of barley. That Ruth probably carried on her own. Not in a backpack. Boaz was generously providing for Ruth. He was also protecting Ruth with vigor. I mean, look at verses 15 and 16. When she arose to glean, as I just read, Boaz commanded his servant, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves and do not insult her. Also, you shall purposely pull out for her some grain from the bundles and leave it so that she may glean and do not rebuke her. 
specific, special kindness and affection. It's beginning. The glimmer is coming. God is working. We're seeing from all of this that Boaz is drawn to Ruth. It's unfolding subtly but surely. Subtle tones of romantic adoration as Boaz shows that real specific, special kindness and favor. God is working. He, God is bringing about His plan. He's unfolding His will, which is far greater, though, than their blossoming love and imminent marriage. Let's look now at how this one full day, a very full day of immense and mysterious providence wraps up for Ruth and yet also Naomi in the fourth and final scene of chapter 2. We've been introduced to the kinsman redeemer and read of his bio. We've seen the kindness of God as he directed Ruth not just to any random field, but the field of Boaz. We've then just witnessed the kindness of Boaz with his providing and protecting hand, by the way, which is a call to a man in marriage. We've seen all that come to the fore. And we see now this full day all wrapped up with, number four, the kindness of providence. Here's the result in verses 18 through 23. Verse 18, look there, she took it up and went into the city and her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. Naomi had no idea what was going on throughout the day. There was no text message. Naomi had been living out her day. Ruth had been certainly living out hers. They had, Naomi had no idea what this day had been like for Ruth. And now Naomi returns. And Naomi then sees this amount of barley, an ephah of barley. About 30 pounds of barley, an immense amount. And she gets very enthusiastic. And her question is, is more like, where on earth did you go to glean today? May whoever blessed you with that, may they be blessed. <laughs> and then Naomi hears words that would have certainly made her heart leap with joy. Verse 19. I want you to imagine this. The, the name of the man, the name of the man who I worked today was Boaz. It would have had little significance to Ruth. The name of the man I worked with today is Boaz. Learning, Naomi, learning that it was this man of valor, this man of prominence, this man of good standing, this man of overflowing integrity, she excitedly declares a blessing. May whoever gave you this be blessed. But look what else she says. Verse 20. May he be blessed of Yahweh, who has not withdrawn his kindness. To the living and to the dead. Naomi's getting her clarity back. Naomi's spiritual clarity is increasing again. 
She's beginning to trust God with her life. She understands that Ruth didn't just chance upon the field today. She is now beginning to respond to God's providence instead of react to her present circumstance. That is an important lesson for me and for you. We can be so prone just to be responding, uh, sorry, reacting to our present circumstance instead of resting and responding to God's providence. She's beginning to see the grace and favor. She is beginning to trust God once again. And that will, we will see, be one of the key motivators from this book. Trust God's hand even when you cannot see God's hand. Rest in knowing God's heart toward you in that sickness and in that sorrow and in that time of difficulty. Even when you can't see His hand working for you, trust that His heart is for you. Then, with true excitement, Naomi then tells Ruth, that man, that kind man, who's blessed you and shown favor to you, she would have loved this. He's our relative. He is our closest one of our closest relatives. And we need to understand here that in Hebrew language and in Hebrew culture, she is not simply pointing out here that Boaz is blood. Like, oh, that's your uncle. No. She is, and I really believe, she's connecting the dots already. Because look at what she says at the beginning of verse 20. He's not withdrawn his kindness to the living and the dead. Through this encounter of Ruth with Boaz, Yahweh has been kind and will be kind to the living and the dead. For this man is more than just a close relative. He is, as the Hebrew conveys at the end of verse 20, when it says closest relative, it's literally saying there, he is, and she says it, and I think the NASB for some reason renders it poorly. Other translations get it. It says, he is one of our redeemers. That's what Naomi says. She's not saying he's your uncle. She's saying he is one of our closest redeemers. Yahweh, she says, has not withdrawn his kindness. Even the dead are going to be blessed. Through this Boaz. Naomi's connected the dots. Why is she saying that? Because the name of Elimelech will live on. Elimelech is dead, but his name will live on. For you, Ruth, are on the receiving end of the kindness and favor of one of our family's closest redeemers. Naomi can see it. She can see it. Boaz, is, Boaz acting as the one to redeem the family name. How do we know all this about kinsman redeemer and what redeeming is? And because it was a law of the day. It was 
live right marriage. And I really believe it's already here on Naomi's mind. Living and dead. One of our closest redeemers. She's, she's connecting the dots. You see, Deuteronomy 25 speaks of what is to happen when an Israelite man dies and doesn't leave behind a son to carry on the family name. The deceased man's brother, who's not married himself, is to take the woman, who's now a widow, to be his wife and to purchase all the deceased's property and provide a son so that then keeps the family name and thus redeem the wife. That's what it means. Leviticus 25.5 speaks about that as well. Leviticus 5, uh, Leviticus 25, 5 through to 10, I believe, speaks about how it is a command for that brother to purchase the property in the land. Naomi's seeing this potential in advance. That Yahweh will be kind to the living and the dead, to her, to Ruth, to Elimelech by keeping his namesake. And Ruth then adds to all the excitement here and anticipation in verse 21. Look there. Then Ruth, again, the Moabitess, just in case you forgot she was a foreigner in a foreign land, said, furthermore, you should stay close <laughs> to my servants until they've finished all my harvest. You should just be close to me for the next six months. That's what he said to me. Naomi would have been excited. Naomi then says in verse 22, Oh, it's good. It's very good. You stay there. <laughs> she actually says, You stay there and don't you bother going to another field. You just stay there. Look at verse 23. So she stayed close by the maids of Boaz in order to glead until the end of the barley harvest and the wheat harvest. And she lived with her mother-in-law. Ruth keeps going each day. No doubt she receives the same kindness. She would have had lunch with Boaz every day. Sit here. Discreet. Biblically. Subtle in his affection from Boaz. All through the barley and wheat season. Which I said is from March through to July. We'll see more of all this continue to unfold as we hit chapter 3, Lord willing, next Sunday. But what about today as we end? What can we pull out today? Well, first, I don't think we should look past verse 3. We, we mentioned it, but verse 3, that whole idea of, and she happened to come to the portion of the field. That was written, as I said, from Ruth's viewpoint to show us that from her perspective, she just happened to chance upon the field. But from God's perspective and His providence, He was directing every single step. Are you, as you sit here this morning, are you un in an uncertain time right now? Are you really unsure? Are you uneasy? Are you feeling unstable? Are you unsure of what's next? Well, this here is living, breathing, God-inspired proof of how God works in the lives of His people. As you get up by God's grace, as you behold Him, 
as you adore the Lord Jesus Christ and are filled with the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, as you are gripped by the reality of who you are in Christ, you then get up. You then get up with grace-enabling ability to follow God, to obey God, to get up and push into this one life we have here on earth. And you get to do that even while sometimes it feels like God is distant and that God is absent. You must remember that it may look like it, but He is not. He is intimately acquainted and intimately involved with every area of your life. He is directing you. Trust Him. Commit today to trust Him. Commit this moment in your heart to trust Him. Trust Him to be working for your good because He is. Don't doubt it. You are a Christian. And I say to you, dear Christian here today, one who has been born again, born from above, born by the Spirit of God, you are greatly loved by God. Greatly loved. Trust Him. Trust His kindness. Trust His providence. The second thing for us today is that we are beginning to see Boaz illustrate the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is not Jesus Christ, but He points us to Jesus Christ through His work. He'll do that as Redeemer of Ruth, as they marry, as He purchases all the property of Elimelech and provides a son and then redeems the family name. But that is just one aspect of how he illustrates as a type of sorts Boaz and how he points as a kinsman redeemer to the ultimate kinsman redeemer, the Lord Jesus. There are two aspects and it's fundamentally important that we see both, I really believe. He is the ultimate. Boaz is a picture of the coming ultimate kinsman redeemer. You see, yes, the act of redemption is crucial. Boaz must redeem Ruth in order for Ruth to give birth to Obed. And then goes on and it's David. And the Lord Jesus Christ is the son of David. It is crucial. Just like Jesus' act of redemption upon the cross, where he died to take all the punishment and the penalty for our sin and rose again to defeat sin and death, and that by faith in him, you can be reconciled to God. That's a crucial act of redemption. But remember this, Jesus also obeyed the demands and requirements of the law in order that there might be a righteousness for us credited to us, clothed upon us. So, as a picture of that, we will see Boaz in multiple ways obey the law and its righteous requirements so as to benefit and redeem Ruth. He is a picture illustrating the work of Jesus. The work of Jesus upon the cross and the work of Jesus in His perfect righteous life in his active obedience where our righteousness comes from. Boaz first keeps the law, then he redeems. It's a picture, albeit imperfect, 
But Boaz is illustrating a beautiful picture of the beautiful Jesus. Do you know the Lord Jesus? Do you know him? As you sit here with your heart beating inside you, as your lungs fill with oxygen, both of those from the kindness of God, do you know the Lord Jesus? Have you received him into your life by acknowledging that you need him in your life because your sin has separated you from a holy and loving and altogether kind and compassionate God? Today, as the preachers of old used to say, today, in this very moment, the doors of heaven are swung wide open for you. You need to come and come by faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Recognize your need for a Savior and believe in Him and trust in Him and you'll be reconciled to God. Here is our kind God, our faithful God. Let's pray. Father, we come before you acknowledging your goodness, your kindness. We thank you for the beautiful picture that this book gives us of your faithfulness and of the coming ultimate Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for the Lord Jesus and how he lived a perfect life. He kept the law perfectly. He endured all the agonies out in the desert. He fulfilled the perfect requirements of and demands of the law that there would be a righteousness, a foreign righteousness credited to our account as he laid down his life upon the cross. Thank you for the lessons in Ruth. Help us to commit today in the midst of the heartache and pain and sorrow and joys and blessings and excitement all commingled. Help us to trust in you anew. Trust in you afresh. Help us to grasp that from our perspective, we just sometimes happen upon things as though they're just happening randomly, but we know they're not, Lord. We know that you are working all things. We thank you for your wise and most holy providence. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.